Welcome to Season 4 of White Shores, the podcast for spiritual beings having a human experience. Let me invite you to walk once more beside me on White Shores to talk about the real meaning of life. Let's discuss dreams, rituals, intuition, afterlife, angels, and other infinite possibilities within and all around you. Season one featured interviews with some of the world's leading scientists researching consciousness. And season two and three built on that solid foundation by talking to authentic spiritual experts, authors, and practitioners. And the bold theme of this season is truth whatever that means. I hope every episode offers you much needed inspiration, meaning and comfort, and perhaps even a little joy in these challenging times. So, now the scene is set, allow the grey rain curtain of this world to roll back and all to turn to silver glass. Let's walk barefoot together on the gentle, glistening sands of white shores, to see what magic lies beyond the material. Thank you for arriving safely on White Shores, a far green country under a swift sunrise. My guest today is a day and night dream and blue angel believer. At the end of the interview, he'll share his visionary angel experience. But from the first moment he starts talking, I know you'll feel in the presence of grace. I always say you can tell a lot about a person just from hearing their voice. And my special guest today illustrates this perfectly. As he talks, you can sense the deep insight and wise calm, but also an inner smile. Indeed, I found it hard to talk to him without smiling in return. That's the wonderful thing about authentic people who live and speak their truth. They just radiate a joy, and that joy is infectious. I truly believe there should be more emphasis on this lightness of spirit in personal growth and transformation, not taking yourself so seriously So let this charming interview be your guide. If you are following or study with any teacher or system and feel weighed down or that the path to enlightenment being offered to you is complicated and impenetrable, that's nothing to do with spiritual growth and everything to do with other people's egos or pockets. Always trust your own knowing first, rather than what others impose on you or expect of you. And if you seek out a teacher or guide, be sure to tune into one like my guest today who keeps his message clear and simple and light. Be kind, learn from the challenges, reach for the joy in life. Always seek the light within and around you. My guest is a best-selling author and hugely admired as an inspiration in the the new or now-age movement today, and rightly so. It was a real dream come true when, after my Bat Gap, that's Buddha at the Gas Pump, YouTube interview with the mighty Rick Archer there, Rick said I should reach out to my guest today, as he had interviewed him recently too and saw 
strong similarities in the two of our approach to spiritual growth. In particular, my belief that spirituality has got overcomplicated and commercialised today, and it should be summed up by two simple words, really. Be kinder. Notice I'm not saying be kind here, because the instinct to be compassionate to yourself and others is actually already in your DNA. You were born with it, and this trait survived evolution because communities that care for each other thrive. They live longer. So, knowing kindness is innate within you and who you truly are, and also knowing that research shows you also have a so-called God gene, or the mystical ability to feel and sense that you are part of something bigger. You already have within you everything you need to become a day, night, and blue angel dream believer. You just need to believe in your mystical ability. And I hope this fabulous interview helps you ignite the mystic, the angel, already within you. And please do stay tuned after the interview for a piece of musical heaven to help connect you to your inner angel, the mystical part of you that always sees beyond the material to what is true, authentic and real. It's played as always by my son and Royal College of um, Music scholar, Robert, who is also kindly producing this podcast. And on that finely tuned divine high note, it's time now to meet a walking and talking inspiration. I think you'll love his words and his lightness of spirit. I hope this interview lights you up from the inside out. Stay tuned. If you would like to find out more about my books, warning, I'm a serial spiritual writer, as well as my features, media, mission and talks, please do visit www.theresachung.com and subscribe to my newsletter for updates as well as free gifts and incredible stories to your inbox. If you have any questions, insights or stories to share, please email me at my trusty angeltalk710 at aol.com email or message me via my author pages on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. I aim to reply to everyone in due course. Season one of White Chores can be found on the podcast page of my website, and all seasons can be found wherever you download your podcasts. Be honoured and grateful if you could leave a review, as it helps spread the word that spirit is real. Walking beside me today on White Chores is Stephen Post, PhD. For 20 years, Stephen has spread commitment to the greater good and the science of giving across the globe. Funding over 50 scientific studies, yes, 50, at the nation's top universities, as well as conducting his own research, Stephen is considered the go-to guy with his uplifting message that when we contribute to the lives of others, give meaningfully, and live by the golden rule, we are generally happier. 
He brings a new level of insight into the ways in which we benefit as givers and a whole lot of practical advice about shifting cultural systems in schools, healthcare, businesses and communities in a positive direction. And on top of all that, he's also a best-selling author of books. And one of those is a book I never tire of recommending to my readers because they constantly ask me this question. And it's why good things, why bad things happen to good people. <laughs> he's the founding director of the Institute for Research on Un Unlimited Love and the founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care and Bioethics at Stony Brook University in New York. Now, this is just a fraction of what's on his website and what you can find out about this amazing um, man, if you haven't already, if you don't know about him already, but I'm sure you do. But if you don't, um, it's just the tip of the iceberg. So let's get straight into this interview because I know he's a very busy man. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm all right. Um, <laughs> we were having a good laugh before um, I started recording. So I'm still in a thank you for for bringing that joy to we my need day. Mirth. mirth matters. I've been saying that a lot, actually, recently. When people ask me for advice, I, I typically now I'm recommending um, comedy videos or or stand up comedians instead of spiritual experts. <laughs> but anyway, please, Stephen, for anyone who's new to you, um, I'm sure many of people listening aren't, but in case they are, could you just give a, a little story of you and how you've got to this point in your life? I have been very fortunate. Uh, I've had many experiences of synchronicity where I just met the right person at the right time. But most of my life, I've uh, really for the last 35 years taught in wonderful medical schools. I've been able to work with medical students uh, on issues of communication, how to be empathic, how to be good listeners, how to practice humility, and look carefully at the outcomes of compassionate care in various clinical populations. I've also been uh, very much uh, involved in positive psychology, uh, so much so that uh, why good things happen to good people became a little bit of a minor classic in a, in a field that has really mushroomed since that was written. Um, I've, I've worked with, with Sir John Templeton, uh, Marty Seligman, and all sorts of wonderful people. Uh, so basically, I'm interested in how we can navigate uh, sometimes the very difficult terrain of life, even when we feel very boxed in and don't think there's much we can do to change our external circumstances. We always have this inner control. We can always practice kindness. And when we do that, uh, we will be healthier and happier and not give in to these sort of downward uh, negative emotions of hostility and bitterness that tend to just eat us up like acid on metal. And uh, we need to hear that message right now more than ever. And I actually said in your introduction why bad things happen to good people. And I did that for a reason, because that's often the messages I get from my readers saying, I'm a good person. Why are bad things happening to me? So I love your the way that you change that to good things happening to, yeah. to good people. And this is a book I, I direct them to all the time. Yeah. But can you please, can we go back to this big question? You know, I know a lot of good people. Um, mm -hmm. You can't be writing spiritual books without coming across them. And they have a really tough time and bad things do happen to them. 
So, <laughs> you know, um, so can you talk more about that? I'm, I know yeah. I'm going towards the sort of the shadow, the dark no, side. No, no, but... no, no. It's, it's the best place to start, Teresa, actually. Um, so I'm a, I, I'm, there's, there's a movement in philosophy these days called neo-Stoicism, but it goes back to Athens and this fellow named Zeno, who was a merchant and he lost all of his money and he became a philosopher and he became very famous because what he argued was that, Hey, you know, everything we find meaningful, everything that we gain happiness from, it can disappear in a minute. This sounds a little bit like Zen Buddhism, I suppose. Um, but you know, um, you have to still, uh, cultivate certain virtues like kindness, uh, temperance, justice, courage. And that's where happiness comes from. Happiness doesn't come from material objects and even relationships are incredibly important. But honestly speaking, um, we can always be betrayed. We can always be hurt. Um, we can um, always lose the people we love. We can all suffer disappointments and we certainly will by all probability. And in fact, no one gets out of life alive. So, 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 so bad things happen to absolutely everybody, but um, a good life means that despite these realities, we find meaning in giving. It's like Viktor Frankl. A lot of your, re your listeners have probably read Man's Search for Meaning in a Nazi prison camp. People were dying. It was a terrible circumstance. There was nothing, nothing he could do about it. But he found meaning because he shared his little morsel of food with uh, prisoners who were more emaciated than he was. And he made the observation that those who could still do things that were kind and meaningful, despite their environment, that they were, uh, they were tending more to survive and they tended to be uh, able to cope. So that's really what it is. It's not, it's not about bad things not happening, but it's about managing those through this kind of inward uh, practice. And that's what meditation is about. I do it every morning, five o'clock. Um, I've, I've, I've worked in a lot of questionable environments. I've worked in medical schools and medical centers, and there are sharks in the water every place. But, uh, but I manage it because I... I I just cultivate um, that um, inner being, that inner peace, and try to make it lively over the course of the day. Oh, thank you for that. Um, it, it makes sense. Uh, I hear hear what you're saying, and I can see why Rick Archer of Backgap suggested we get in touch because I was having this kind of conversation with him. Do you do you agree though that sometimes it takes being really hurt and upset or let down by people to come to that point that we have to kind of go through this uncomfortable, difficult awakening to get to this point of peace. Because um, I've done a lot of work recently with people who have been narcissistically abused or in difficult abusive relationships where they have been kind and they have trusted, but that trust is abused. And it takes a lot for them to emerge from that and find strength. It sure does. But that's why 
inner peace and these virtues of patience and an acknowledgement of imperfection um, and kindness in all interactions to the extent possible, those kinds of things have to be fine honed. They have to be uh, strengthened through practice and through uh, interactions. So absolutely, uh, you know, bottoming out. Zeno, the great Stoic, again, he lost everything. Uh, my grandfather, Edwin Mainpost, was a super millionaire in the, you know, 1920, but he lost everything in the Depression. Uh, and uh, after the Depression, uh, he, he's, he was he's actually repairing boats on the south shore of Long Island, but he found the greatest happiness in his life. He spent a lot of time whittling uh, birds and uh, fish with the children in the neighborhood, and everybody loved him, and he loved life more than he did uh, when he had a seat on the on the New York Stock Exchange, so people do bottom out, and you know we've bottomed out here. We this Stony Brook Medical Center was an absolute epicenter for the COVID uh, issue for the last fifteen months. Now it's much better, but oh my goodness, you know people have gone through a lot, and yet we've come together, we've formed better relationships uh, professionally, uh, interprofessional relationships are better than they've ever been. Everybody respects the nurses and the doctors and the respiratory therapists and the clinical social workers. We come together really as a family through the most difficult uh, period imaginable. So that's that's absolutely the case that that you you cannot avoid um, betrayal, broken hearts, obstacles of all kinds. But that's the the point of uh, of life is is maintaining balance, equanimity, kindness, despite everything. And don't, don't, don't expect uh, things to turn out easy or rosy. Talking about being kind, being loving, being open and being generous, though, when people are like that all the time, they get taken advantage of it. So how, what advice do you give to people who are like that? whose yeah. instinct is to trust and to be kind, but time and time again, and it seems to happen more and more mm-hmm. these days, that you are, I mean, they, if you know, look at Christ, for example, we ended up on the cross because of his kindness. Well, so where do, you, where do you draw the line? <laughs> you have to draw boundaries. You know, I'm, a very, I'm very, very realistic about human nature. Uh, you know, uh, as the Buddhists say, there's a north and a south in human nature. And you've got to always be careful. There's a beautiful uh, quote that I, I enjoy from a New York City theologian from the 1930s named Reinhold Niebuhr. And it goes like this. The children of light must have the cunning of the children of darkness, but none of their malice. There is every obstacle and people are oftentimes unwise, untrustworthy. Uh, Their kindness, their love for us is unenduring. Uh, We get betrayed uh, even when we do wonderful things. And there's some truth in the statement that no good deed goes unpunished. I've done plenty of good deeds. I've I've experienced some negative repercussions. But, you know, (laughs) but but I've still, it still doesn't mean that I'm not responsible um, even if I draw boundaries, and I do, you know, and 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 obviously, um, 
you know, who we choose for friends and who we associate with is very, very important. Uh, but I'm very protective. I'm very realistic. I'm, I'm cunning at times, uh, not unkind uh, in that. And I, and, I, and I practice what I call in Why Good Things Happen, care frontation. So you get pretty good at, at you know, dropping the velvet hammer and letting people uh, know that there are limits on their behaviors, but without losing the relationship entirely, without going uh, into, uh, a, you know, an incredibly uh, destructive emotional spin of bitterness and hatred and hostility. That we should avoid at all yeah. costs. And for the Stoics, we avoid that because we also recognize that even though other people have taken advantage of us, have been abusive, have betrayed us. Um, we're human beings just like they are. And if we look at our own journey in life, there are probably some times when we've behaved similarly. So uh, mm -hmm. it's not them against us. It's got to be very balanced. And that's where spirituality comes in. Spirituality to me is about staying on the north side of human nature, even though the world around us is so challenging. Beautifully put. Thank, thank you so so much. But I, because I know a lot of my listeners, they they're very very kind, loving, caring people, and they write to me when they've been hurt. So I know that your words are going to be golden here. Thank you so much. Because I tried to articulate it, but you just articulated it so so beautifully. Really spoke to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Can we talk a bit more about why good things happen to good people? I love this book and the, the 10 ways that you give in there of giving. And um, which, which of those 10 yeah. could you talk about now? Which do you feel inspired to, to talk about now, those 10 <laughs> ways? Well, I might, I might go with mirth. I mean, my, my, whole, <laughs> my whole philosophy of life is, is... I can hear that in your voice, actually. You've got yeah. one of these voices. And I love doing these, these interviews audio only because you pick up so much. It's like you're laughing when you're talking. Yeah. Well, you know what the fish said when it swam into the wall? <laughs> Ow. <laughs> no, it said, it said, damn. Ow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. mirth is great because in a single millicenter, second you can shift the entire atmosphere and help people to completely reframe their experience so mirth is a tremendous gift and you know uh, uh, when you lose mirth and you become overbearing you're never successful in whatever you want to do even if you're a, an activist you need to actually have a little bit of lightness of being because uh, otherwise people can't stand being around you uh, and, and that's so true. But for me, you know, so I, I do base all of my life on this ideal of love, but I don't use ancient languages. I just say when the happiness and the security of another is as real to you as your own, or maybe more so in some cases, you love that person. <coughs> so mm -hmm. it's that simple. And But nobody wants to really talk about love as a practical principle in everyday life. So I, I, I like the 10 modulations or manifestations of love. And, and that's what the book is based on. So, you know, one would simply be uh, compassion for those who are suffering. I get up in the morning, um, about five o'clock, I, I meditate for at least an hour. And I visualize the people I know I'm going to run into, I keep a little 
calendar book uh, planner uh, in paper, by the way, <laughs> you know, by my <laughs> desk at home. And, and I know that some people need some compassion because they've been hurt. I know some people need um, some attentive listening because um, uh, they aren't taken seriously. Some people uh, need loyalty because they've been betrayed. And so you, you know, you want to express loyalty to them and say, you know, I'm going to be here for, for you and you can call me anytime and don't hesitate and, and stop by tomorrow and let's follow up. Uh, simple uh, kindness is, an, is, is a manifestation of, of, of love too. And that doesn't take a lot. Uh, it's not like, you know, complicated empathy, but it's just, you know, having a gentle curiosity about the people around you. So I really believe in all these manifestations of love um, that um, make the world go round and make our lives successful. Forgiveness is certainly one of those manifestations. And I call it, in, in the book, I have a, a term called carefrontation. And, 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 and again, that's in contrast to confrontation against, I'm not against anybody, but I'm going to be doing carefrontation at least once or twice a day because there are people who will otherwise walk all over me. And, and uh, you know, the world is, 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 is not a simple place. I mean, what this important book that you've written, Good Things Happen to Good People, it's really is kind of a, a recipe, isn't it, for, for a fulfilling, rewarding life, one that has meaning, one that's deep. Um, and that's what I, 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 I get from it. My question, though, is for people who don't necessarily follow those rules um, and you see them being extremely successful, um, why is that? I see them being extremely successful in a certain sense, in the sense of uh, greed, vanity, notoriety. Um, but ultimately, uh, and they may be economically successful in some respects. I, I, think it's, I think it's very good to be economically successful. Um, um, but I do not uh, endorse uh, those lives that stray from the basic virtues because Ultimately, it's not material possessions that will bring us the lasting happiness that we desire. People are still terribly empty. They're running on empty on the inside, even though they may have accumulated uh, a whole lot of things. Um, but your, your happiness really comes from inner calm, from that sort of peace and tranquility that you only have when you, when you act with integrity uh, when you act consistently with your identity, with your with with the things that really are meaningful, uh, and 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 let the rest take care of itself, doesn't mean that you you can be naive, but um, but yeah. So people succeed in all kinds of you know skullduggery, um, <laughs> but that doesn't that doesn't um, mean anything. And by the way, parents could do better. The big study at Harvard. Uh, uh, couple of years ago of parents, at least in, in the U.S. And, you know, they want their kids to be kind. They want to raise kind children until the kids get to be about 13 or 14. And then kindness goes out the door and it's all about success. And then what happens, yeah. you know, is, is your kids wind up uh, oftentimes um, with anxiety disorders and depression. Uh, they're running on empty. They have affluenza. Um, uh, so, you know, they really don't get 
where they need to be. Mm, I agree. I certainly see that with, with my children. And I think actually COVID, the pandemic, has actually made us all think that they were kind of on this treadmill of success, success, you know, in, you know, top institution, top institution, achieve, achieve, achieve. And actually this whole year of reflection and contemplation has actually made them think, I want to do something with meaning. And I'm wondering if you've noticed that with the people you work with, this, this period of contemplation we've had as the world's been gripped by yeah. this pandemic, yeah. with many of us forced inside or to change our lives, that it's made us more, has it made us kinder? Well, I, you know, so, so there's a difference between solitude and loneliness. Quite a few books have been written about loneliness during the last year mm. as people have been forced into some degree of isolation. And loneliness is not, not good for you. But uh, solitude is if you decide that you want to spend more time on your own to be contemplative, as you say, to be meditating, to be thinking more deeply about the purpose and meaning of your life. That's a great thing. That's why uh, all of the great mystics uh, uh, go into solitude. They're not forced into it, but they need to get away from the world. They need to get away from the routines. They need to get away from all the loudness and the brashness and the competitiveness and the running from point A to point B. They need to get away from that, and they need to go into solitude. So <clears throat> a lot of people, I think, during this pandemic just went into loneliness. And you can, you can see that there's an elevation in depression uh, and, and the like. It's, it's not an easy thing for an adolescent, for example, to uh, have to set aside uh, social interactions to a significant degree mm. by not being in school. But, you know, for people who can manage it and who are ready for it uh solitude is a very different thing than loneliness loneliness is a suffering solitude is a flourishing and i think a lot of people flourish they discovered um the value of their loved ones of the people who care about them uh and they deepened relationships so here in in this hospital but in most people's families um they rediscovered the things that are important. And what's important, what's really important is relationship. Mm. Mm. And quality, not um, quantity in mm -hmm. relationships, I think, you know, and not spreading yourself too thin. Um, but can I, I just, I'm just fascinated um, by you. I mean, you have such wisdom and I can imagine going to a talk that you do to be so inspiring um, and your life is very visionary. You've been touched by heaven, I think, and certainly reading your books. And But where did this desire to do this kind of work come from? Was there a catalyst in your life, something that set you on this path? Were you born into a family of spiritual seekers or people seeking deeper meaning? What what was it that put that drew you to this the work that you do? Do you really want to know? It's I, I, I don't want to be long-winded, but n n <laughs> no, my, my family was not a spiritual family. I Were was, they very materialistic? Were they uh, well, just, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty empty world, and we didn't have terribly functional or good relationships. I think it's fair to say that we had a dysfunctional 
family and uh, there was a lot of a lot of drinking. I, I in reaction to that, was a non-drinker uh, and have always been a non-drinker. Not that I judge people by that, but I just I just saw so much waste in the people I loved. In fact, I'm I'm my middle name Gerard. My uncle Gerard uh, died at a young age of alcoholism. So I um, I I feel um, that I've been very fortunate. <laughs> You won't believe this. When I was 15, I had a dream. I was up at St. Paul's School, an Episcopal or Anglican school up in Concord, New Hampshire. And I uh, studied a lot of philosophy. I was just drawn to it. I studied world religions very heavily and um, um, loved to walk around the woods reading Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. <laughs> um, you know, Bill Clinton still pulls that book off the shelf once a year and rereads it because it's so much about how we can only manage the suffering in life if we, if we um, insist in our own hearts on being kind, not naive, not without boundaries, but kind. And, um, and so, so I had a dream when I was 15. And I, do you want to know about this? I do. I love dreaming. I've written loads of books about dreams. I'm all for dream power okay. so please I, I think that people should listen more to the wisdom of their dreams yeah. yeah well I was I was an adolescent you know and you never know what kids will come up with and whether to take it seriously but I was up at this you know quite illustrious high school and and uh, I would wake up in the morning I this happened six times over the course of a year and I had a dream. I write about this in a book called God and Love on Route 80. The oh, I was going to ask you about that title. I love that title. Yeah, yeah The <laughs> Hidden Mystery of Human Connection. So, okay, yeah, yeah, what is Route 80? But what happened was, I, I, it was really early, and I wasn't sure if I was fully awake or fully asleep, kind of betwixt and between. And lo and behold, there was a road, and I knew it was going to the west. And it was very foggy, misty. I couldn't see very far. And as I'm walking down the road to my left, I see um, the face of a young man with stringy blonde hair about to jump off a ledge of some type. And then all of a sudden, into the dream comes the face of a blue angel, now not winged, just a, a wonderful, loving countenance. And she said to me, if you save him, you too shall live. And then suddenly the mist all alighted and, and I continued walking to the West. Now the dream ended, I had nothing to say about it, but we had required chapel service every morning. And I went to my pew, you know, and I would, contemplate this and I talked about it in sacred studies classes and 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 we we at one point even went to Yale University Divinity School with my teacher to talk about it in a class on adolescent spirituality and um, they wondered you know so what's are you okay you know I said no I, I wasn't dyspeptic I hadn't had to work off too many demerits raking leaves in the hot sun 
And anyway, so I kind of let it go. But a couple of years later, I was supposed to go to college at a place called Swarthmore in Philadelphia. And uh, I had a job that summer in the Bronx tutoring because I love tutoring. I'd done that up in New Hampshire. So my um, uh, my mom and dad got really upset. They said, you can't tutor in the Bronx. That's where I was going because it's too dangerous. And we struggled for three days about this. And finally, my mom said, if you insist on this, I'm not helping you out with college. So I, I, I relented and I said, okay, but now what can I do this summer for a job? And my dad, who was the president of a department store on Fifth Avenue, Sloan's department store, he said, I know what you can do. You can work and build De Bono's lampshade factory. So I spent two weeks cutting <laughs> cardboard in a hot, sweaty lampshade factory in New York with a lot of people smoking. And after it was over, after that two weeks was over, I took my dad's secondhand gray Mercedes 190 and I drove it out to Eastern Long Island to West Hampton Beach, spent some time with some friends. And I decided, you know what? I don't need college. You know what? I'm going to follow the dream. So about 11 at night, one Friday night, I just started driving west, Sunrise Highway, through the Midtown Tunnel across Manhattan, over the George Washington Bridge. And there it was. Okay, Teresa, the sign. Route 80 West. Because <laughs> I knew West was the dream. It wasn't South. You know, there was 95 South. I didn't want that. So I, I drove in this in this beat-up Mercedes. And about five in the morning, uh, I was thinking about turning back. Because, look, you know, even I, I, I didn't want to completely destroy my reputation with my family. So I, <laughs> so I was thinking about doing a U-turn on the midway. But just as I was doing that, the generator stopped because cars had generators in those days. Absolutely no energy, no light, no power. The best I could do was to coast over to the shoulder of the highway. And and then there I was. It was pretty dark, you know, a little bit of, of dawn. Uh, there was nothing but cornfields out there. Um, so I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and I wrote a note, which lived in history in my family <laughs> that my father, I think, never quite forgave me for. It said to the Pennsylvania State Police. Please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davidson Lane East, West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655, telephone number, from his son, Stephen, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> and I, put, I put my thumb out, a big white truck came by, and I got all the way out west with my guitar and my copy of Siddhartha. And I spent the summer in the Mission District of San Francisco with my cousin George, sleeping on the floor, practicing Nichiren Shosho Buddhism, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. I drew a really bad draft number. So in early September, I called the people at Reed College because I'd applied there too and turned them down. And I said, do you have a spot for me? Because I don't want to go over to Vietnam and get involved in this. So they opened a spot. And uh, about 7 in the morning, 7.30, I met in front of the temple on Market and Chenery Street. And there was Cousin George and a few friends. And they gave me a Gohon Zone, which is a Japanese scroll. And it's got some symbols. It gives you a lot of luck. It's got some symbols like well, one mind, universal mind, uh, kindness forever and such things. And um, I got on the Market Street bus. I got to the Golden Gate Park. 
I walked across the park. I got up on the Golden Gate Bridge and I walked halfway across the bridge and there was, I could see about two feet in front of me and it was all misty and, 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 and I was on the pedestrian walkway on the left side. And it's like, was at the middle of the bridge? I heard a kind of scratching noise to my left and I looked and squinted and I saw the contours of a face that looked an awful lot like the face in my dream, which shocked me. And so he looked at me, I looked at him, he was on the railing about to jump. He was on the other side of the, of the, of the waist high rail. And I, and I said, I truly hope you're not going to jump. And then he, he just started screaming at me. Life is empty. Nothing is. He was actually quoting from Macbeth. And, um, and I said, wait a minute, calm down. It's possible that I was guided here to meet with you. And I told him all about a dream two years ago, 3,000 miles away. I told him about going to Yale Div School. I told him about the argument with my folks. I told him about leaving the, 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 the car on Route 80 near the Lewisburg exit and getting all the way out here and getting the bad draft number. And that somehow I felt that I was destined to meet him. His name was Harry. And he thought I was nuts. But I told him, well, you're the one who's about to jump. So he actually, I, I said, if you come on my side of the railing, I will give you something that will change your luck. Because, you know, Buddhists have a little bit of this kind of thing in their traditions. I will give you a Gahon zone. So he was curious. He came across the rail. I unscrolled the Gahon zone. I explained it to him this symbolically. And then I, I, I gave it to him. And I said, look, here's a note. There's a note to my cousin, George. This is Harry. Please let him sleep on the floor where I was sleeping. Bring him down to the temple. Let him meet so-and-so and so-and-so. And, um, and, and so Harry and I shook hands. He was calming down. Now, I don't know if he was on drugs or not, but I headed north on the bridge because I'm going up to Oregon where Reed College is, and he's going south into the city. And as we parted, suddenly all the mist alighted, and it was this incredibly bright blue uh, morning sky and I just felt completely elated. And I, whether, whether you believe me or not, at the t subjectively, I felt that the dream had come true, that somehow this was where I was supposed to be and that there's such a thing as destiny that's a lot bigger than any of our little goals, you know, and, and we don't want our goals to get in the way of our destiny. But somehow from that moment, never in my life did I stop believing that our minds are part of one original mind, a kind of um, divine mind, if you want to refer to it as that. And that explains how we can have these uh, dreams and premonitions that are far beyond the limits of time and place. And I had that experience when I was 17 years old, and it formed my entire life. In fact, I eventually left. A, I was at the University of Pennsylvania studying immunology on a PhD program. I left and I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School to study shamanism with Mersha Eliade and journey motifs with Joseph Campbell, who was there half the year. And, and you know, um, most of my life, I mean, I've been in medical schools, but, but most of my life, it's all about continuing the journey. And if you ask me where I'm from, it's from, it's Route 80, because Route 80 goes, you, if you're in San Francisco, there are signs for Route 80 East. And it goes all the way to New York. So it's one of the great highways across the country. And 
and and there were there were, there were about ten or other ten or eleven other other experiences of this uh, incredible synchronicity. So that's really what I what I what I what I believe in, and um, that's how I got started on this. Oh, it's beautiful. I did, and I'm so glad I did because we got the birth of a mystic there. That was just a journey, and I'm going to check out that book. It sounds amazing, the Route 81. So thank you, thank you, Stephen. It's wonderful. I wish I had more time to. For this podcast is quite short, and I wish you know the. It's like they should have a whole series. Because yeah. I, I just feel like there's so many topics. I, I'd love you to come back on again and talk more if if you have time. I know you're busy. No, I'd be happy to do it. We've covered any anywhere near the questions. I've got this whole enormous list um, that I wanted to ask you. I, I wanted to also talk to you about the Alzheimer's book that you did as well and how that really gets us into the power of now, doesn't it? Um, well, if you have someone with Alzheimer's in your life. Yeah. Um, goodness. So- so yeah. I have a new book uh, coming out about three months, and it's called, get this for a title, it's called Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. Yeah. How caregivers can meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease, because I don't even believe in the word dementia. It's, it's no. a, a word purely of decline from a former mental state. Deeply forgetful people can have moments of incredible paradoxical lucidity, Yes. Uh, on you know and 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 to write them off as gone or absent or dead or a husk or a shell is completely wrong and we need to embrace them in part of our shared humanity and recognize that underneath those communicative difficulties or long periods of silence there is still a being there is still self-identity there is still a soul absolutely and and as i say the the power of the present moment is never more felt than when you are with someone with that condition you have to be if you're going to if you're going to connect with anybody who's deeply forgetful you have to enter into the now (laughs) yes and so you know it's forcefully yes really true you're you're forced into it And to return to the theme that you started with, and I'm very grateful for humor actually is very important when you are caring for someone like that. Um, it can really lighten the tone because sometimes it can be very funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, there can be, be moments of, of absolute hilarity because of it. But that, that is another podcast which I'd love to talk to you yeah. about. Stephen, I'm so, so, so grateful. Just before you go, um, I love... Um, to people to know how to connect with you if they're new to you what's the best place to to find out more about you your work your mission your research your books your everything well i have a personal website um which is stephen with a ph though uh stephen g post no period stephen g post.com okay and then i founded an institute with Sir John Templeton, which he named, by the way, and it's called the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, and that's it, unlimitedloveinstitute.org. And then I'm also at Stony Brook University, but the the personal website is probably a good place to begin, and people can email me if they if they want. And um, and do you reply? Do you have time to yeah, reply? Yeah, I reply. I, I reply to emails for, oh. you know, for the most part. Yeah, I do. It's, it's difficult. 
especially for people in the UK. I love the UK. Oh, thank you. I'm actually, I was a senior fellow at St. Hughes College in Oxford. Oh, wow. So, and you are, you said you were Irish British. You are, you are. Well, my, yeah, my mother's, my grandmother was from Sheffield and my mother's maiden name was Molly McGee. So that's pretty. Oh, I love Molly McGee. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and just before you go, I love people to have um, recommendations. Is that, you know, you talk about the power of laughter. Is there some movie or film or some spiritual um, series or something that you would recommend that you've seen because it just makes people feel good? Well, there are so many things. I, um, I think if you want to watch a really good film, uh, Mathieu Ricard, uh, who is wonderful, uh, has a great film uh, called The Altruism Revolution. It's kind of a documentary, but he's a, he's a Zen monk very close to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, one, 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 one thing, too, I'll give you my favorite quote, which is from Eleanor Roosevelt. And it, it, it makes sense for a blue angel dreamer. Her, 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 her quote, <laughs> um, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. You so are psychic that- because I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment and I just used that um, quote oh, it's a great <laughs> as, a, as quote. a chapter heading. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing because I was yeah. just typing it out today. I love it's these things. It's a beautiful quote. It's a beautiful quote. And my, my, my grandmother actually knew her a little bit way back in the day. And, you know, um, no matter how hard your journey can get at certain points, don't ever give up on the beauty of your dreams. And everybody has a calling and they have a destiny. And sometimes, you know, that your destiny is so much greater than your own little intentions and your own little plans. So there's a painful moment there. But... Um, if you have hardships, it's an opportunity to discover your destiny and your destiny is to be kind always and to dig into that part of your, your, your nature, your soul and overcome uh, even the, 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 the worst sorts of behavior. It doesn't mean tolerate them or refuse to draw lines in the sand or put yourself in a vulnerable situation. But if you go into that downward sucking vortex of hatred, bitterness, and animosity, it will cut your life short and you will never be happy. On the other hand, if you have spiritual practices and you can, um, you can manage um, to stay in kindness, you will be able to, to, to manage admirably. And that's what happiness is. And on that beautiful blue angel believer high note that's a beautiful way to end end this interview Stephen post thank you for all that you are and all that you do i really appreciate your time today thank you thank you Teresa. you do a wonderful job thank you from my heart for being here and walking beside me in spirit on white shores Sensitive, kind and compassionate souls like you who see beyond the material are needed more than ever today to help the world heal. Thank you to Clan Re for the blissful episode music and do check out the show notes for all details about this episode and my contact details. 
I'm going to say goodbye for now with a musical or literary offering, a piece of heaven for you to take away and store in your heart as you return refreshed to your one precious life. Until we meet again on these white shores, keep being amazing spiritual you, sending my eternal love and gratitude.